invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, a very well-known passage of Scripture, Genesis chapter 3. I want to read the first 15 verses with you in, in the con- connection of uh, Lord's Day 3. I remind you that we're still in that section of the Catechism on sin. The Catechism, as I reminded you, is divided into three sections, sin, salvation, and service. And we're still in that section under sin. We want to look at Lord's Day 3, man's misery. Lord's Day 3, in connection with that, I want to read with you from Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, the first 15 verses. This is the word of God. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave me to be, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Thus far the reading of God's word. Would you then also turn with me in the back of your Psalter hymnal to page 872, 73, 873. Lord's Day 3, question and answer 6, 7, and 8. Lord's Day 3, page 873. And I remind you that this is your confession of faith as it is mine. And so, question, did God create man so wicked and perverse? No. God created man good in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might truly know God as creator, love him with all of his heart, live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. Well then, where does man's corrupt nature come from? from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are conceived 
all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are actually or totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word and the summary of that word as we found it in the creeds and confessions of the church. May God once again add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here with me this afternoon in Bowmanville. You will remember, I hope, you will remember, otherwise I will remind you, but of Lord's Day 5 of our previous Lord's Day, uh, years up some time ago, the question was asked, are you able to live up to God's law perfectly? Not do you, but can you keep God's law perfectly? Are you able to fulfill that which is required of you? And we learned there that according to the scriptures, the answer was no. Even stronger, we learned that by nature, what comes naturally for us is that we hate God and our neighbor. We're taught where perfect love is required in the totality of our hearts and souls towards God and our neighbor. Instead, we demonstrate enmity and hatred. A horrible indictment. A horrible indictment of the condition of man was given us in that Lord's Day. And this afternoon, the Catechism will instruct us as to the reason for this re re rebellious condition of the hearts of men. Courage, it is a weighty thing that we have before us this afternoon. And the subject matter at hand is well worth our careful consideration. Not only the church, but also the world has sought answer to the question of evil in the world. There is so much evil. There is so much corruption in the world and the religious bookstores are filled with books addressing the question concerning evil in the world and tragically, tragically the hearts of men, even the hearts of Christian men, they have vainly tried to so interpret the scriptures to teach that the cause of this rebellion of men is to be found outside of, and is to be found apart from man himself. And, and, and that ought not to surprise us. Modern autonomous man, meaning the unregenerate, the non-born again man. It, he is greatly offended when the scripture identifies him as an enemy of God and, and an enemy of his neighbor. Such teaching is an offense to a man who wishes to maintain his own honor, his own integrity. Indeed, the ungodly has no knowledge of these things. But the child of God as we hear him here in the catechism this afternoon, he stands with his hands on his open Bible and he confesses, albeit with trembling voice, he confesses, mea culpa, I am guilty. The child of God has been unable to see the truth about himself and he cries out, Lord, Lord, I am guilty. I myself am responsible for the evil in the world. For this evil is the consequence of my own sinful fallen heart. My life, my life is often a mess because of my own sin. The world is a mess because of our collective sin. And being aware of the gravity of this question of evil in the world, the Catechism points us, first of all, to the righteousness of the Creator. Echoing the teaching of scripture, it correctly teaches us that since God is not the author of sin, 
This whole question of sin in man and in the world must be sought then in man himself. And then the origin must be found in the context of man's disobedience already in paradise. And so I want to minister God's word to you this afternoon using as my theme the origin of man's sinful nature. The origin of man's sinful nature. We want to learn, first of all, the origin of sin is not to be sought in God. Then we want to see that the origin of sin is to be found in man himself. And then finally we will learn of the far-reaching effects or the consequences of man's sin. May God's Holy Spirit lead us into those truths this afternoon. The question before us reads, did God create man so wicked and perverse? The question naturally takes us back, way back. It takes us back to the dawn of history. If we want to rightly understand the question and the answer, then we need to set this question into the context of the creation and the fall. You know the story. God created man. On the last day of his creation activity, God formed Adam from the dust of the ground. God then blew the very breath of life into him, and there stood Adam, a fully formed creature consisting of both body and soul. God then caused a deep sleep to come over him, and from his rib he formed Eve. But, but, but although God did indeed create Adam and Eve, and through them all of mankind, he did not create them or us as we are today. What I mean is God did not create man wicked and perverse. That's how we are today. God did not create man with a nature that is inclined to hatred and evil. No. How would that be possible? God is light and in him there is no darkness at all according to our Bible. God is truth and God is goodness. He is holiness and righteousness. He hates and condemns sin. How could it even be suggested that God is responsible for man's sin? Correctly does the catechism teach us that according to our Bible, God created man good and in his own image that is in, that is in true righteousness and holiness so that we might rightly know God, his, cre his creator, love him with all of his heart, and live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. That's how man was created. God created man, and God created man good. At the end of the creation account, we read, and God saw what he had created, and he declared it to be good. Even He said, even it is very good. In other words, as he came from the hands of his creator, man was good, not only physically, but also morally and spiritually. He corresponded completely to the objective to which he had been created. There was no defect in him. There was no deficiency to be found in him. In fact, not only was he created good, we read further, he was even created very good and in God's image. We need to let that truth sink deeply into our hearts and souls and minds for a minute. And we need to discern carefully here. God created man in his image or in his likeness, meaning then that man's created being was not some kind of an added ornament, if you will, no. It was created as a reflection of God himself. It was a reflection of God himself that was created within man himself. And this image of God was part of man's essence. It was part of man's being. 
But follow this with me for a moment. The expression God's image can be correctly understood in a narrow as well as in a wider sense. Bear with me. When we speak of it in this wider sense, then we must understand that to mean that in all of his faculties, in all of his capacities, man reflected God's image and God's likeness. And this image was not simply an addition or an ornament or an add-on. No, it was a quality, or if you will, it was a God-like attribute. It was a God-like quality created in man as part of his very essence and that attribute, that quality, radiated itself in all of his qualities and capacities as a man. His body, his mind, his heart, his attitude, everything about him reflected his creator God. Had we been able to see him as he came from God's hand in the creation account, had we been able to see Adam, we would have immediately been able to recognize Adam and Eve as a son and a daughter of God. They reflected his image. They bore his likeness. However, here in our Lord's day, this image is dealt with in a more narrow sense. We learn that man was created with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. But just what does that mean to be created with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness? Well, just what does it mean that Adam was created with righteousness? Well, theologically, reference is made here to original righteousness, meaning then this was a gift of God created in them. It was a treasure granted them. You know, you know what a, a righteousness means. It means sinless. To be righteous means to be sinless. And that was a gift of God created in them. It was a tre treasure God granted them. Not a single defect, not a single deficiency, or even a sinful inclination was to be detected in them. It can, of course, be correctly argued that all Christians possess a certain righteousness. It is true that all Christians have been justified, been made right with God, and therefore they possess an imputed righteousness. However, however, that what must be understood is that in them, in Christians now today, after the fall, it is not their own righteousness, their own sinlessness, but it is Christ's righteousness working in them. The righteousness of Adam and Eve, however, was not yet the righteousness of Christ, but it was a righteousness, it was a sinlessness that was, was not imputed to them, transferred to them from Christ, but it was created in them by God. It was an innate or an inborn righteousness. That's how they were created. And it was in the same way that Adam and Eve were in possession of holiness and purity. Not only did they have no guilt before God, they also were not affected or polluted with any remnants of sin, as is the case with us today. Holy and pure they were in all of their work, in all of their ways. In short, they were holy in the entirety of their being. And this righteousness and this holiness was a stamp upon them that reflected the very image and the likeness of God. That's how they were created. And man was created with this image of God in order that he as a prophet would know God, as a priest he could love God, and as a king he could live with God for God's praise and God's glory. Congregation, man, man was created to enjoy eternal blessedness. 
Had Adam and Eve not sinned, had they not rebelled against God, had they not listened to the temptation of the evil one, had they rather, as was required of them, had they loved, honored, and glorified God, they would not have been banished from the garden. They would not have become alienated from God. They would not have died. And they would have possessed an eternity of blessedness with God. That's how man was created. And God created male and female. He created them in his own image. And that image was created in man's very being, and it was part of his very essence. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness were specific attributes or qualities created in man, and without these qualities, he is unable, without these qualities, he is unable to serve and to love God as he ought. Therefore, the emphatic no to the question, did God create man wicked and perverse? No. The ruined nature and the corrupt heart of man is not of or from God. To the contrary, man was created good in the image of God. He was created with and was given all of the things necessary to love, honor, obey, and to serve the Lord perfectly. He was given all the things necessary to love God above all else and his neighbor as himself. God, had create, God created man with the ability to do so and to do so perfectly. But that still leaves us with the question, if man was not created evil and corrupt, where then does his sinful nature come from? And we read the answer together. From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise, this fall has so poisoned our nature that we are born sinners corrupt from conception on. And my dear people, what must catch our attention here are the two words, fall and disobedience. Firstly, we are taught of a fall. We learn here of a falling, a falling of Adam and Eve. Being, being the crowning jewel of God's creation, man was placed in a high estate, and yet through a fault entirely his own, he fell. And this fall plunged not only Adam and Eve themselves, but all of their posterity, including us here this afternoon. It plunged all of their posterity, including us here, into ruin. All of mankind, every single human being, including you, me, and our children, each of us and all of us come into this world being unable and unwilling to love God above all else because of that fall. This fall robbed man, including you and me, yes, even our children. It robbed us of all true happiness and it brought with it the most horrible of consequences for body and soul, all because of the fall of our first parents. And my dear people, God, the catechism insists that we understand that this fall was brought about through disobedience, disobedience to God's command. Disobedience is sin, it is unrighteousness or transgression, not only against the law, but also against the lawgiver. As a sovereign lawgiver, God had instilled in Adam and Eve a moral law that was in harmony with the Ten Commandments. Adam and Eve, they knew God's law. Oh, it had not yet been written into a book or on a tablet, but in essence, it had been written upon their hearts by the very finger of God. 
through their innate or inborn knowledge of the law, they knew they were obligated to love God and neighbor above all things. They, were, they, they, they had the knowledge of the law. They knew, they knew they were obliged to love God and neighbor and all things. Remember, there, there was also nothing within themselves that would incline them otherwise. In fact, they were naturally, by nature, what came naturally to them, they were inclined to love and to obey God. And had they done so, they would have continued to experience his blessing and their blessedness into all eternity. But you know the story. You're all familiar with the facts. Adam and Eve were created perfect and in God's image and placed in the garden, a garden dazzling with the beauty and the majesty of God's perfect creation. They were, according to God, at liberty to take freely from all of the fruits of the garden with the exception of one, namely the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It was forbidden to them. And along with that command came God's word, eat from this tree and you will surely die. In this garden, Adam and Eve walked and talked. They walked and talked with God. All was perfect happiness, perfect bliss, and perfect blessedness. Not a note of discord was heard, and all was perfect harmony. And yet in all of this happiness, there was one who resented this blessedness, and he had determined, if possible, to distort and to destroy this peace and this tranquility, the devil, Satan himself. Up to this point, a stranger to man, who had previously fallen with his own hosts of angels, he had determined to separate man from God. In fact, properly understood, God's arch enemy was determined to attack God himself through man. And if you're familiar with the language of the Bible, you will know that devils are legion. In other words, there are many devils doing the bidding of the prince of darkness also today. However, Satan himself, Satan himself seldom confronts and tempts God's people. This work is usually left for his minion servants. However, in this case, Satan himself makes an appearance. And contrary to much contemporary thought, Satan did not change into a snake or a serpent. No, he simply exercised his power over the animals and he bides his time, waiting the opportunity. He sees Eve alone in the vicinity of the forbidden fruit and he implements his destructive plan in a most deceitful manner. It's extremely important for us to notice that Satan uses a method still employed so frequently today to destroy and to deceive, if possible, even God's elect. Capture with me that Satan uses God's own word, God's own words, but distorts them, twists them to mean something radically different. Satan speaks through the serpent and he says, Eve, did God really say? Did God really say? Did you not misunderstand him? Do you really think that this great loving God, do you really think that this great loving God would plant all these beautiful trees, Eve, and then deny you the benefit of this one? Surely you have misunderstood. You have misinterpreted God's word, Eve. Notice also the doubt instilled in Eve's heart. Listen carefully to Eve's response to Satan. God said, we may not eat nor touch this tree. He had not said they may not touch this tree. 
And so already she was adding words to God's words, evidencing that her doubtful heart was receptive to the whims and the wiles of Satan. Oh, Eve, you will not die. Let me tell you the real truth, Eve. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him. You will be God. And then as now, Satan's lie is set over against God's truth. You will surely die. You will not die. Oh, there's nothing new under the sun. Still today, Satan uses men and women to pervert the scriptures, to twist God's word, to convince others that the scriptures can be interpreted into many different ways. In fact, the scripture can be twisted to make it say whatever we want. Mighty people, God, some of you will know that I conducted the funeral of my sister a week or so ago. And in that service, I comforted the grieving, believing family but I was aware of a number of straying and wandering family members among us, and I asked them if they wanted to be able to face the grave with the same confidence evidenced by my sister, and I told them that if that was their desire, their only hope, according to Scripture, was to find their way to the cross. When I got home that day, I found a scathing letter of condemnation in my email box of someone who had heard the warning, and he had insisted that I owed an apology to the family because not everyone believed or interpreted the scripture in the same way. That's what happened there to Eve on that fateful day in the garden. Satan deceived her by twisting God's own words and thereby subtly convinced her that God didn't really mean what she had clearly heard him say. And seeing that the tree was pleasing to the eye she ate, she gave also to Adam and he ate. Having been tempted herself, she now becomes the temptress. Adam, called to be the head, listened to the voice of his wife rather than the voice of God. Nothing is new under the sun. This too has been before. And it was in that way, congregation, that sin entered the world. This account is not a myth or a fable. It's a historical account, an historical fact given us by God himself. Sin is not from above. It's not something created in man. It is from below and exercised by man. Therefore, the answer to the question, where did sin come from? From our first parents in paradise. Adam stood in paradise as our federal head. All the promises to him were to us as well. All the threats and the curses were directed to him, but also to us as his posterity. As the old McAfee reader of the public school system used to say so eloquently, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. As a result of the fall, not only Adam and Eve, but all of their posterity, including you and me and us gathered together here, as well as our children. As a result of the fall, all of us, from conception on, we come into this world by nature, hating God, unwilling and unable to return to him. That's why we confess already at the baptismal font that our children are conceived and born in sin, worthy of all manner of misery, yea, to condemnation itself. See here the devastating effects of the disobedient fall of man. My dear people of God, the, question, uh, the, the questions remain unanswered for us. There are many questions that remain unanswered and are they're forever hidden in the eternal counsel of our Lord. However, this much is revealed and this much is necessary for us to know. 
God did not initiate or create sin. Man himself, you and I, we brought about our own sin, our own ruin. The final question is, but are we so corrupt that we are unable to do any good, inclined to all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. And although mention here is made of regeneration, here in the section of sin and misery, it is simply given us as a note of hope, but it is not yet developed. That will come later on. That will be done later on in the catechism as we move along. Here, however, we have to do with the extent or the consequence of the fall. Unable to do any good. Inclined to all evil. People of God, that's you. That's me. That's our children. Unable to do any good. Inclined to all evil. What a damning indictment upon the natural inclination of mankind. How different the spirit of the world speaks of self-esteem and human potential. That's not how the Bible identifies us at all. No, indeed. Oh, we may speak, we may properly speak of what we have become, but that is all of God, from God, to God, in Christ. None of it is ours. What is natural, what is normal for us, what comes naturally for us, is to hate God in our neighbor. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God and thy neighbor with all thy heart, and now what comes naturally for us is hatred the exact opposite of what is required, unwilling and unable to serve God, unwilling and unable even to come to God. What a horrible indictment upon us. What a horrible picture is painted in Scripture of the condition of your heart and mine. Congregation, here we have one of the fundamentals of the historic Reformed faith. In theological language, it is called the doctrine of the total depravity of man. It teaches us that man, as he is born today, is unable and unwilling to return to God and is totally unable to do anything pleasing to God, nor is he able to even to begin to prepare himself to meet God. You, me, and our children, prior to that rebirth of which the catechism speaks, we are enemies of God, inclined to all evil, inclined to hate God and our neighbor. It's a horrible indictment upon us, but to err from this teaching of the total depravity, or if you will, the spiritual inability of fallen mankind is to wander into the shadows of Arminianism or worse, into the darkness of Pelagianism. But, 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 but many are to be found tragically sometimes with, even within our own reformed circles who refuse to accept such a humiliating doctrine. <coughs> many arguments are offered. Many schemes are devised in order to maintain one's own dignity one's own self-worth and self-esteem. But the clear teaching of the scriptures is that all men, all women, even the tiniest of children from conception on come into the world as enemies of God. Remember with me the question asked of you as parents upon the baptism of your child. Well, a child only several days old. Do you acknowledge that our children are conceived and born in sin, subject to all manner of misery, yea, to condemnation itself? Do you believe that this child is conceived and born in sin and already on its way to hell without divine intervention? And you said, yes, I do so confess. Yes, I do so believe. My child, my little guy, my little girl, just a few days old or a few weeks old, 
as consequence of the fall, my child conceived and born in sin, worthy of condemnation, my child already now lost, already now, because unless God gives him faith, my child only a few days old and already condemned to hell, unless he or she is born again by God and, and, and of God and for God by the Spirit of God. People of God, we do not deny that man is able and still does many good deeds. Many people do so very much good. Sometimes with some of these good works, they put us to shame. But it is a rel- what is called a relative good deed. Many people donate food and clothing and even billions of dollars to alleviate the suffering of a fallen human- humanity. But without faith in God, unless these deeds spring from a heart that has been made alive in Christ... It is impossible for these good works to please God. In fact, without faith, unless these gifts are given from a born-again heart, they are unacceptable and even an abomination to God. Man created to love has fallen. He has lost God's image. It has become distorted, and only small remains of that image still cling to him, remains large enough to condemn him before God as being without excuse, but insufficient to rescue him and to save him. The conclusion, therefore, is that mankind in his entire being, body and soul, has become so corrupt as a result of sin that he is incapable of doing any spiritual good. His mind has become clouded. His will, his conscience, his heart, and his emotions have all become distorted and corrupted. He is, to use the language of the Bible, he is dead. In sin and trespass, there's not even a breath of spiritual life in him. And now, my dear precious saints of God, the all-encompassing question, the all-inclusive question, the burning question before us now is this. Is it possible for man to be rescued from this tragic condition? Since he has been inclined by nature to all evil, is there still any way out? A clue is given us in the last part of this answer. No, there is no way back to God. There is no way that man can be restored to the Father. There is no way that man can do anything to please God. There is no way that man can again be received into the fellowship of the Father. There is no way that he can experience the sacred presence of God in heaven unless, unless, unless... He is born again. That's it. That's it. Man is corrupt. Man is born as an enemy of God. Man is born hating God and his neighbor. That's his nature. That's not how he was created, but that's how he has become as consequence of that fall in paradise. That's the nature with which man is now born. Can man escape God's wrath? Can man escape God's wrath and be returned to God's favor? No, not unless he is born again. Or if you will know, not until, not unless, man's nature is changed. If man is to enjoy the face and the presence of God, he must be born again with a new nature. It is the miracle of regeneration. It is the miracle of being granted faith in Christ. It is the miracle of being granted life. It is the miracle of being born again. It is the miracle of being born of water and the Spirit. It's only by being born again of the Spirit of God that man can be rescued from the clutches of sin and death and hell. That rebirth, that and that alone can change him, can rescue him from the 
clutches of death and hell and give him life, new life, now and forever. And only, hear me well, and only God can and God does perform that miracle. My dear people of God, listen carefully. Just as man was originally created by God, he now needs to be recreated by the same God. Apart from God's grace, apart from saving faith, apart from that great gift freely granted by God and sovereignly wrought in man by the Holy Spirit of God, it is impossible for man to be saved or even to prepare himself towards salvation. Apart from the saving grace of God, apart from a prior work of God in the hearts of men, not even one tiny step will or can be taken towards salvation. Left on his own, man will continue into all eternity to reject the Christ of God and spend eternity in utter darkness in hell. I beg of you, people of God, do not trust your own heart. The heart, above all, is evil and deceptive. Put rather your confidence in God and trust in him alone to grant what is necessary to wage battle against the natural inclinations of your own fallen heart. Plead earnestly on your knees for God's recreating work. If indeed you have experienced the miracle of God's grace in regeneration, then praise God. Fall on your knees and praise him for his great love to you. What you were unable to do, God has done for you, outside of you, in Christ. God in Christ has overcome the powers of darkness, and therefore now all of those who know themselves to be his possession have become more than conquerors over all of their enemies, even the enemy that lives in our own heart. God, who has initiated that saving work in your heart, will tenaciously guard it and keep it unto all eternity. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. The greatest of these is the work of faith, freely given by God in our own total depravity and our inability. My dear precious saints of God, search now your own heart. Search your own heart and life for evidence of that new life. Search your heart and lives for evidence that God, as Paul says to the Colossian congregation, that God has rescued you from the kingdom of darkness and has translated you into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son, in whom we now have redemption and forgiveness of sin, both actual sin and inherited sin. And if you find that evidence, then with me and the poet, fall on your knees to confess, O oh Lord my God, t'was not I that did choose thee, for Lord that could not be. This heart, my heart, would still refuse thee, hast thou not chosen me. Shall we pray? Lord, to a sovereign mercy called me and taught my opening heart. The world had else enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. My heart owns none before thee, for thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing that if I love thee, thou must have loved me first.